one to follow there. Sweetness. Love it. Well, good morning, church. That was a good, hearty good morning there. That was great. Well, let me invite you to open up in your copy of the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Pastor Ben asked me to pick up where we left off from last week, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. So that has us looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning. As I thought about an illustration um, for this passage this morning, I kind of thought about the feelings that one gets when they hear a song. You know, there are very many different songs out there that are intended to accomplish different things. Any good song, though, will match the music to the words of the song. If the words express sadness, it would be appropriate for the music to capture that sadness. If the words contained jubilant emotions, you would expect the key to complement that joy. Well, the words of Jesus we will look at this morning can be compared to a song, and I submit to us that the words here cover different keys and stir different emotions. In hearing Jesus address to us as witnesses in this world, we will hear the sounds of triumph, intensity, simplicity, warning, and seriousness. It's a short song, it's only four verses, and not every sound is equally played. In fact, after studying this passage this last week in more depth than really I ever have, the sound that carries the greatest weight in this song is uh, the serious sound. Seriousness because of who God has made us to be. We are not who we once were. We have been born again through the high price of our Savior's sacrifice. We are not our own anymore, but belong to a new, kind, and benevolent master. And our master has a purpose for us in this world. We are witnesses for Christ. And here is the most serious part about it. God has attached his very glory to our witness in this world. This is a serious matter. So that's, I think, a helpful illustration as we move forward in these verses. And just to give it a title, I think an appropriate title for this message would be Being a Witness in the World. So we pick up here in verse 13. And Jesus says this, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus says about his followers here that they are the salt of the earth. Now I'm assuming that little to no explanation is needed to assert that Jesus is not being literal here. He's not saying that his disciples are the equivalent of the crystalline compound NaCl that consists of sodium chloride. Webster's Dictionary. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is that his disciples are metaphorically the salt of the earth. 
And I think one of the leading lexicons has it right when they say that Jesus is using the metaphor of salt with respect to the spiritual qualities of his disciples. The spiritual qualities of his disciples. And keeping this in context, the spiritual qualities that are characteristic of a disciple of Christ are those things which Jesus spoke about in the Beatitudes. So things like poor in spirit, mournful for sin, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, and perseverant under persecution. And I think he also has in mind the qualities derived from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, things related to how Christians should approach anger and lust and marriage and oaths and retaliation, loving your enemies, etc., So when Christians live out the Sermon on the Mount, they are showing their saltiness before this world. They are giving witness to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, giving witness to Christ is costly. We already saw this reality back in verses 10 through 12, where we saw that persecution and insult and evil utterances against us will come precisely because we are followers of Christ. In verses 13 through 16, however, while being a witness for Christ is still in view, the emphasis shifts from opposition to clarification about our witness and exhortation to persevere in that witness. And the way the Lord clarifies our witness in verse 13 is by saying that we are the salt of the earth. Now, this idea of salt communicates to us the effect that our saltiness has on this world. The effect that our saltiness has on this world. Now, thinking about salt as a natural element, what effect does salt have? Well, on the one hand, salt preserves. And on the other hand, it provides taste. So it preserves and provides taste. As a preservative, salt prevents decay from taking place. It keeps harmful bacteria from destroying food. And it also preserves what is good about food. Christians have that kind of effect in this world. Their presence in this world serves as a preservative purpose. Leon Morris said in his commentary on Matthew, What is good in society, his followers keep wholesome. And what is corrupt, they oppose. They penetrate society for good and act as a kind of moral antiseptic. The presence of the Christian in this world gives testimony to the fact that there is a wrong way to live and a right way to live. The Christian has, by God's grace, repented of their living of life the wrong way. They have come to the knowledge of their sinfulness before God. They realize they are impoverished in spirit. They are saddened by their sin, and they desire now to live their life before God in righteousness. They are new creations in Christ Jesus. And as new creations, they speak and live lives that testify that there is a wrong way to live, and there's a right way to live. And the fact that they were once devoted to a lifestyle of the wrong way to live keeps them humble. Um, Have you noticed this reality in your own life? As you contemplate who you were before Christ, doesn't that keep you humble? You were once just like the world. 
Um, while you decry the ways of the world, you remember that you were once a part of that world. But God made you alive in Christ. He showed you grace. And he puts you on the path of righteousness for his namesake. So in our decrying of evil in this world, we must maintain an attitude of humility because we were shown mercy by God. And as we submit to Christ in this world, we expose what is evil. Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Christians are to avoid, abstain from the sinful world, as James talks about. And as Paul says here, we should instead expose the sinful works of this world. And the way in which we do that is by appealing to God's law. You know, we didn't come up with truth, right? Uh, You may have heard people say to Christians, well, who made you the one who determines what is right and wrong? Well, the right answer to that question is no one made me or any other Christian, for that matter, the one who determines what is right and wrong. God sets the standard. His holy, righteous character is the standard. We're like referees on a field. We didn't write the rule book. We're just calling the game according to the rule book. God's word has already set the standard. As Christians, then living as salt, we oppose what God's word says is evil. As such, listen, we don't expand the definition of marriage. Marriage is what God says it is. One man, one woman, in covenantal union with one another. We also don't give hearty approval to thievery. We don't stand for dishonest business deals in order to make an extra buck. We don't participate in the gossip of a neighbor. And many other things we resist, even expose it as sin. Not because we are the arbiters of truth, but we are testifiers of that truth. Like the song, I didn't make it, but it is making me. The standard is the word of God, amen? And if it says something is evil, that's how we call it. Now I realize in the world in which we live, that's not loving, okay? It's hateful to say that anybody is doing anything wrong. Uh, We hear things like, I have my truth, you have your truth, don't judge me for my truth, right? Um, And one of the most misused verses in the Bible in this vein is, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, See, the Bible says you shouldn't judge people. But, you know, that's a misunderstanding of that verse. Jesus, in that verse, in that context, is condemning hypocritical judgment in that passage. He's saying if you've got a big log of sin in your own eye and you make a to-do about the speck of sin in your brother's eye, you are a hypocrite. And his counsel to this person in that passage, Matthew chapter 7, which we'll get to later on, he says, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you see, Jesus is not condemning all kind of judgment. He's condemning the hypocritical kind. But judgment that comes from a place of integrity, that's what we as Christians should shoot for. That makes us salty. That also makes us loving. The most loving thing we can do is tell people they're sinners and they need a savior. 
It's not enough just to say that's wrong, that's sin, but without telling them that's wrong, that's sin, what are they being saved from? For the good news to be truly good, it must be set against the backdrop of the bad. It's like a diamond. Its glory is best viewed against the backdrop of darkness. And the darkness, the bad news is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners against God. But God, God sent his son to save sinners from their sins so that if they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they will have eternal life and be saved. Amen? That's the most loving thing we can do for people. That's not hate speech. That's love speech. This is part of being the salt of the earth, as Jesus said, opposing what is evil. But at the same time, we are to uphold what is good. We're to uphold what is good. For every evil we oppose, the alternative good we must uphold. When we oppose so-called same-sex marriage, we must likewise uphold God's good design for marriage. Christian uh, singles need to fight for purity. Married couples need to build strong marriages. Uh, Widows need to retell the blessings of marriage to the next generation. Uh, My grandmother, Mona, a widow since 1999, will retell her memories with her, or my grandfather, And she will talk about her former husband with respect and dignity. And I always get the sense that she valued that marriage. And I think what she's doing then is she's talking about the goodness of the ways of God. He has a good design for marriage. And the next generation needs to know that. For every evil we oppose, the alternative good we must uphold. This is applicable in more big ways and even little ways. Uh, We obviously would not condone stealing. Stealing is a sin. But what's the alternative good of stealing? Well, it's valuing someone else's property. Uh, If you borrow your neighbor's gas-powered lawnmower, you don't return it to him with a flat tire and no gas. No, you return it with the tire aired up and more gas in the tank than what you got it with. That makes us salty. So for every evil we oppose, the alternative good we must uphold. And when we live like this, we are a preservative. But remember, like we said, salt is also for taste. As Christians, we are to be tasteful. And by tasteful, not so much in the way we typically think of tasteful, though we must be that as well, but tasteful in the sense of distinct. Distinct. When we uh, add salt to a dish of food, it gives the dish a salty, distinct flavor. Well, that's what Christians are with their witness in this world. They are distinct from this world. This is where we get part of that adage, which I'm sure we are all familiar with. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. That latter part, not of the world, means that we are distinct from the world. You know, the church is always in danger of looking like the culture around it. Let me say at the front end of this point... I don't think it's sinful for Christians to enjoy good things about the culture, good things within the culture. We can uh, have electricity. It's okay to drive vehicles. Um, Nothing wrong with that. We can eat at a restaurant if we'd like. It's fine. Other things about the culture that aren't sinful, which we can enjoy and thank God for. Amen? 
But the very points at which the culture is promoting and celebrating sin, we are to be distinct, set apart, holy unto the Lord. This is the effect of Christians in this world as they live out who they are. And Jesus said that Christians are the salt of the earth. Now in this next part of verse 13, we move into a warning against spiritual decline. Uh, Let's read it and offer some explanation. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is a serious warning that Jesus is offering here. What is he saying, though? Well, think about the natural description of salt here first. Uh, Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? First off, I think this is a rhetorical question. Uh, The answer is assumed. It's not possible to restore salt that no longer has saltiness. We know this is the assumed answer because Jesus goes on to say, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Uh, In other words, if salt loses its saltiness, it can't be restored, it's useless. Now from a natural explanation of things, this has caused commentators, I'm going to say no little consternation. Uh, Some try to answer the question, how did salt lose its saltiness in ancient times? So some will go looking for explanations in the ancient world for how salt would uh, lose its saltiness. Now, I'm not so sure how helpful that is for this reason. Jesus is doing something rhetorical here. The commentator John Nolan captures what I mean when he says, the various explanations offered for how ancient impure salt may have lost its saltiness are probably beside the point. The point is that would be, it would be bizarre and unnatural for salt to lose its saltiness. The rhetorical force of the image comes from normal human discomfort with things not being or behaving in accord with what is understood to be their intrinsic nature. Notice this last part again. He says, with what is understood to be their intrinsic nature. In other words, we understand salt to be salty. We would expect salt to be salty. And here's the point just like we would expect someone with a Christian witness to maintain that witness. Now, this means um, one of two things, as, as I see it, two different ways to interpret this passage. One is either a genuine Christian can lose their witness, i.e. lose their salvation, or the person Jesus describes is one who abandons their witness because it was never genuine. Now, if we go the first route, we will find it has problems when we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Other places in Scripture indicate a true Christian can't lose their salvation. No one will snatch us either out of the Father's hand or the Son's hand, John chapter 10. Paul said we have the Holy Spirit within us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, Ephesians 1.14. Eternal life is guaranteed to the saved believer. So I don't think the first option fits with the rest of Scripture. What I think Jesus is describing here then is a person who fell away from a former profession of faith, thus proving that they never had a genuine profession to begin with. Matthew will record later on in Matthew 13, Jesus teach on this kind of thing in the parable of the soils. Notice what Jesus says. 
As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. Jesus teaches here that there are people who hear the word, may even endure in that word for a while. They may even say that they believe that word, but they have no root in themselves. The gospel has not truly penetrated this heart. They do not have a new nature from the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they don't persevere, but fall away. Same thing Jesus says about those in the end times when he says in Matthew 24, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Notice that that's persecution. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Notice the same thing here, fall away. There's no root in themselves because when tribulation and persecution come, they will fall away. So I believe that this is who Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And I believe, though, that Jesus is offering a genuine warning here in this passage. The warning is this. Don't be this person. Maintain your witness. Persevere through hardship. These kinds of things Jesus is saying here and in the context of Matthew. And I'm convinced that warnings like this in the scripture are designed by God to keep us moving forward. Like me, you read what Jesus warns about here and you go, I don't want to be that person. I do not want to fall away. I want to maintain my witness. I want to persevere in the faith all the way to the end. And I think that God uses these kinds of things in the scripture to keep us moving forward, to keep us faithful, to keep us on the straight and narrow. And so we could say, in effect, Jesus is wanting us to stay salty. Jesus now shifts from calling us salt to calling us light. Here beginning in verse 14. And the metaphor of being the light of the world is very similar to that of being the salt of the earth. And the idea is that of being a witness for Christ in this world. But the image of light does offer some unique reflection as we consider both what the gospel of Matthew says and then what other places of scripture say. Uh, we've already seen the image of light back in Matthew 4.16 which was a quote from Isaiah 42.7. The text reads there, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, this quote was used by Matthew to depict the movement of Jesus from Capernaum or into Capernaum to begin his ministry. And so what Matthew is showing is that the light mentioned by Isaiah that comes into this particular region to expose its darkness is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus is the light, then, is what Matthew is saying, that brings the revelation of salvation to darkened sinners. Now, the Gospel of John uses the metaphor similarly. Uh, speaking about his coming to this earth as the incarnate word of God, John says about Jesus, quote, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And then in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus himself testifies that he is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have 
the light of life. I believe that these New Testament accounts of Jesus, or I believe these New Testament accounts of Jesus um, being the light fits into also the background of the Old Testament. As we move from Old Testament to New Testament, we learn some things about light. Light is talked about in a number of places in the Old Testament. Let's rehearse a few of these. This is helpful. Light was what radiated from the glory of God in the cloud that led the Israelites throughout the wilderness. Um, When we get to the Psalms, the people of God were to lift their voices and sing, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In speaking about the word of God, the Old Testament scripture, both the Psalms and Proverbs contain the description of God's word as a lamp and a light that gives guidance to the people of God. Now, more could be said on this point just about the Old Testament background here, but it seems that it would be right to see that the Old Testament background to the usage of light is found in contexts that have to do with God's saving and sanctifying activity in the lives of his people. It's no wonder then that as we come to the New Testament, we see the author speaking about Jesus as the light. For he himself, though he became man, is eternally God who saves his people from their sins and sanctifies them. And the one who follows him does not walk in darkness, but possesses the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. So with what we know, all that that was just said, and of course the connection to Jesus being the light of the world, it's very surprising that we come, when we come to Matthew 5.14, Jesus calls his people a title that is elsewhere fitting to describe himself. Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world, but notice he says to his people, you are the light of the world. Well, what are we to make of this? Of course, it would be an error of heretical proportions to say that Jesus is saying we, either, we are the exact same as Jesus. Um, we are not like Jesus as if to say that we are God and possess the same saving ability. If you believe that this morning, let's talk later. Well, you know, Mormons believe that humans become God. Certain preachers of the prosperity gospel say that Christians are God. But none of this is allowed by the word of God. We know from the Bible that God will share his intrinsic and unique glory with no other. Uh, He is God and we are not. And Jesus is the unique only begotten son of God and we are not. But what do we know? We know that as Christians we are identified with Christ. We have union with Christ. And as we live in this world we are We are a reflection of our Lord. People should wonder, what was Jesus like? And be able to look at Christians and say, that is what Jesus looks like. We are the light of the world in that sense. Leon Morris says it like this. He says that Christ himself is the light, whereas his followers are no more than pointers to and reflectors of Christ, the light. By cosmic analogy, Jesus is the light source of the sun, We are the reflective light of the moon. The moon has no light of itself. It merely receives its light from the sun. This is how we are to Christ. We reflect his light in this world. 
Now, as I say that, I'm sure that we're all immediately met with the downer in our minds that we are imperfectly reflective of that image. Uh, we are a broken mirror. We are a dull reflection. And let me say that there's a sermon to be given on that topic, the topic of you and I being imperfect reflections of Christ. But for this sermon, based on this text, we need to feel the weight of what we've been called to all over again. Uh, we need to see what Jesus says about us um, we need to let it sink in. You know, Pastor Ben says, Selah. We need to let it sink in. We are representatives of Christ on this earth. We are the mirror that God has placed in this world to reflect the glory of his son. That's what Jesus says that we are. And what a tremendously high calling. There's no higher calling in all of the universe. You know, we may have our dream job with a dream title. We may be proud fathers and mothers. We may serve with honors on a neighborhood council. We may have academic credentials or even be a doctor. We may have all manner of titles in this life, but none of them bear the weight of our highest calling. We are Christians. We are disciples of Christ. We are the light of the world. This is amazing. Such a wonderful privilege. And you know what? The fact that we are the light of the world means that God made us to shine in this world. It's the very nature of who we are now to shine. Jesus will indicate that it's against our nature to not shine. He gives two true-to-life examples to show this. He says in verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. All right, that's the first example. The second is in verse 15. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. With this first example, Jesus is pointing out a truism. Uh, when a group of people wanted to build a, a city that got recognition, they built it on a hill. And the fact that they built it on a hill meant it was impossible for it to go unnoticed. The connection here is clear that God has made us to be a city that gets recognized. And in fact, it's impossible that we won't get recognized. Notice the word cannot. A city cannot be hidden that's on a hill. It's impossible. In the same way, it's impossible that we won't live out who we are by nature. God has made us to be that way. And notice the similar idea in the second example. Jesus said, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it will give light to all in the house. Well, what's the purpose of a lit lamp in this example? Well, it's to give light to the whole house. So if the purpose of a lit lamp is to give light to the house, no one in their right mind would be thinking of hiding that thing. You, you wouldn't do that. In Jesus' example... No one would put it under a basket, okay? And we know the kid's song, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Uh, bushel, basket, maybe different translations going on here. The Greek for basket here refers to a grain measure of about 8.75 liters. Uh, this would be the equivalent of the size of one of those small plastic trash cans that you might have in your office. Uh, so it's not very big, meaning that the lamp was not very big either. Jesus' example here is pulled in from the common person of the day. This is a common experience to the common person of his day. And it seems that the picture is, picture is of, of someone lighting a lamp and taking the small basket and turning it over on top of the lamp. 
Jesus is saying no one would do that. Since the purpose of the lit lamp is to light the home, you wouldn't put it under a basket, but set it on display on a lampstand to light up the room. Um, That is the very nature of things. Just like salt is meant to preserve and provide taste, just like a city on a hill is meant to be seen, so also a lit lamp is to be set on a lampstand. And of course, here's the connection, though, to our witness for Christ. Jesus just flat out tells us in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus is simply saying, shine your light. Um, You are light. That's who God made you to be. He made you to be a witness for Christ. Be a witness. Let your light shine is what Jesus is saying. What does that look like? Jesus tells us. He says it looks like good works. Um, It's the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. The same good works that we are to be zealous to do, Titus 2.14. The good works that we are to consider how we might stir one another up to do, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And it's the good works that are described in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is commanding us to live these good works. Now, why we might ask, well, Jesus gives us two reasons. One is because we are a witness to this world. Um, People are watching our Christianity. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Our good works are to be on display for people in this world. They are watching, they are looking at your life. Might they see the works of Christ? But more important than that, we do these good works because number two, God's glory is at stake. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, this is a very high calling. God is chosen to bring, this is amazing, God has chosen to bring glory to himself through your and my witness in this world. I think we need to feel the weight of that again this morning. God has attached his glory, his namesake to me and you as we live in this world. This is seriously important. The English preacher Charles Simeon, he gets this serious tone right when he says this. He says, remember that the eyes of all are upon you and that God's glory in the world is very greatly affected by your conduct. Any fall in you or fault in you will soon be noticed by the world. They who pay little regard to the stars that shine in their orbits orbits will yet observe or be observant enough of a fallen star. And in like manner, they who overlook the radiance of 10,000 saints will mark with triumph the fall of a professor and derive from it an argument against all serious religion. Be on your guard then against everything which may eclipse your light or cause it to shine with diminished splendor. Do y'all feel the seriousness of this song? Um, Brothers and sisters, we have a, a high calling 
We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Jesus has, um, has saved us from our sin and God has made us a new creation. We have a new nature within us. We're something different. We're not who we used to be. And of course, though we're not who we hope to be in the future and that's fully conformed to the image of Christ, we are in process, right? We are progressively being sanctified and becoming more and more like the image of Christ. And a passage like this reminds us that this is what we're to be about. We are to be about the business of becoming more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because people are watching and God's glory is at stake. And the latter of that ought to drive us every single day to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. God's glory is at stake, brothers and sisters. Let's bring glory to him. Amen? Let's pray.